Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zaylot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. I am joined today by Mary Rice Hassan, Director of the Catholic Women's Forum at the Ethics Public Policy Center. Mary and I will be discussing the forum's Person and Identity Project, which seeks to, quote, assist the Catholic Church in promoting the Catholic vision of the human person and responding to challenges of gender ideology, unquote. Mary, welcome to Bioethics on Air. Thank you so much, Joe. It's delightful to be with you. Great having you. So you are a new guest on our podcast, and as such, I always ask our new guests to please tell our audience a bit about your background, specifically your education and your work experience leading up to your work with the Ethics Public Policy Center. Sure. I am an attorney. I went to Notre Dame Law School, and I have worked in policy-related positions over the years. Uh, I raised seven kids, so during that that interlude, worked a lot from home and took some time off just to be mom, which was wonderful. Don't regret a second of it. And But in the past 10 years or so, I have been fully immersed in the uh, public policy world, working to help state legislators, uh, people in the church, whether diocese, the USCCB, um, individual clergy bishops, confront some of the public policy questions that really touch directly on church teaching related to marriage, sexuality, women, family, things like that. And most recently, uh, have been working a lot on the question of gender ideology. So I joined the Ethics and Public Policy Center, gosh, about seven or eight years ago, and then soon after started a project called the Catholic Women's Forum, which aims to network uh, Catholic professional women to bring forward our voices in support of Catholic teaching. Because so often we hear Catholic women quoted as opposing the church and, and viewing the church's teachings as oppressive. And we want to counter that because it's just not true. Right. And then from that, we were working with a woman who was over in the um, Vatican's uh, office of, of women. There was a women's office and we put together a symposium on gender ideology because we saw that this was something coming down the road that was uniquely harmful to women, but also just to the church's vision of the person. So we held a just an academic closed symposium on that about five years ago. And then from that, the Person and Identity Project was born, although we really didn't um, launch it until this past year. But but the ideas and the research and the the networking to create this expertise was has been in development for gosh about five years. So, wow, yeah. So that's a, quite a bit of information there. We'll kind of step back a bit. I was wondering, can you talk? What is your what is your specific position at the Ethics Public Policy Center? What are you What are you responsible for? I guess. Yeah, my uh, my title is the Cato Byrne Fellow in Catholic Studies at the Ethics and Public Policy okay. Center. And Ethics and Public Policy Center. Uh, aims to bring forward Judeo-Christian principles into public policy. So we have scholars who are from a variety of faith traditions, from Orthodox Jewish to uh, Evangelical Christian to Catholic. But the common thread there is we're trying to bring those common principles to bear on public policy. So that's my title. Uh, And initially, I I was just doing some research and writing, but then saw the opportunity to create the Catholic Women's Forum, in other words, to create a network that would would highlight women's voices and, and women who are already writing or teaching or speaking on these issues. And so it's been a, a wonderful collaborative process that has really borne good fruit in terms of developing expertise, but also just launching different projects such as the Person and Identity Project. So the Person and Identity Project is an initiative of the Ethics and Public Policy Center directed by me in my capacity there as Cato Byrne Fellow and uh, Director of the Catholic Women's Forum. Yeah. So what? So Mary, what does a typical day look like for you? <laughs> well, busy, busy. Uh, it, it typically, <laughs> typically I, I try to reserve the mornings to do reading and, and just in-depth, thoughtful work. But then inevitably, 
it becomes a series of answering emails, whether it's from legislators, from parents who are grappling with with issues related to gender dysphoria or, or transgender identities, uh, from people within dioceses. It involves doing media work, where I give a lot of interviews uh, relating to public policy positions. So, for example, I spoke yesterday, testified yesterday in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee against the Equality Act. That's not because we're against equality, but because this particular act does not promote equality, but is really a threat to religious freedom and to the basic truth that we're created male and female. So my typical day involves the research, it involves engaging with people who are working on public policy questions, and then doing my own writing. And specifically in relation to the Person and Identity Project, we have a newsletter that we get out every few weeks. We are constantly creating new content that responds to the inquiries we receive. So I receive emails literally every day from families or people um, who work for the institutional church who are grappling with different questions. What do we do when a, a fourth grader presents himself as a female? What do, what do we do with that? Or parents who say, my my daughter who was raised in the Catholic faith, solid family, uh, and we sent her off to college and she's come home from break announcing that she's a boy and we need to call her by a boy name and she's going to take time. How do we deal with that? So grappling with questions like that, trying to point people towards resources like the NCBC that can really help them unpack the church's teaching and figure out how that applies to them. So you've talked uh, a bit already about the Catholic Women's Forum. I was just wondering, can you tell me, when did that forum actually start? I know you mentioned a few years ago, but just uh, let me give us a little bit of, a little bit more background as, as to how the forum started and, and a little bit more on how it interfaces with the Ethics Public Policy Center. Yeah, so I was already a scholar at, at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, just working on these common issues related to faith, family, women. And when Pope Francis became Pope, he spoke right from the get-go about making room for women's voices. So I spoke with a number of friends, Helen Alvarez, um, uh, Deborah Savage, who teaches up at St. Thomas, uh, my sister, Teresa Farnan, who is a seminary professor, and just put our heads together about a way to bring forward the voices of women that who support Catholic teaching, because it was clear he was going to make some changes, and we wanted to be sure that there was a significant voice in support of Catholic teaching because, as I said, the media emphasis, and sometimes even within the church, is to hear the squeaky wheel that's complaining that the church's teachings are somehow repressive to women. And it, it, that is, right. And we hear that a lot. Yeah. The richness of the church's teachings in speaking to women and family and questions of sexuality and, and um social justice within the church is tremendous. And yet we need to embrace that vision fully. So so we decided initially to just create this network, which I was able to do under the auspices of the Catholic Studies Program at Ethics and Public Policy Center. Catholic Studies is headed by George Weigel. He's the senior fellow uh, mm-hmm. at Ethics and Public Policy Center. So we started this scholars network at the Catholic Women's Forum, which is now about a hundred women scholars. It's sort of a, a brain trust, if you will, people just collaborating in very serious ways, both scholarly writing, but speaking, working on questions of public policy, things like that. And then from that, we also have a larger uh, mailing list and we have a website where we try to um, put up great resources and keep people abreast of things that are happening related to women. And for women, the question of gender ideology uh, cuts cuts deep because on the cultural level, gender ideology challenges the notion that there is anything specific to females and males. And so after a few years, when Pope Francis started talking about the dangers of gender ideology. On the one hand, he was he was showing this compassionate face towards people who experience difficulties in same-sex attraction or identity. But at the same time, his words regarding gender ideology were so strong and so compelling. He called it wicked. He said gender ideology is a global war against marriage and the family. And so that that spoke to us and we said, you know, we need to make sense of that for people because 
people need to understand that compassion is not incompatible with calling something what it is. And and gender ideology is truly, uh, it's an opposing anthropology that's so contradictory to the Christian vision of the person. So that started us working with uh, some women who who worked in the... um, in the Vatican, focusing on women's issues. We worked together with them to hold a symposium on gender ideology. And as I said, from that, we eventually launched the Person Identity Project, which is personidentity.com. And that aims to equip Catholics and Catholic institutions with the information they need to counter gender ideology, but also to propose a vision of the person consonant with Catholic teaching. Yeah, absolutely. Great segue into my next question, because that's actually what what I wanted to talk about in more detail next is the Person and Identity Project. You mentioned the website, but I'm wondering, can you tell us, give us a a broader overview of what the whole project is, what it started, when it started, um, and and what are the various aspects of the program? Thanks. Thanks, Joe. Um, The project was officially launched last fall and we we started really publicizing it just a couple of months ago in February of 2021. Yep. But there was a lot of background work that developed in really from our, our expertise because our leadership team has been speaking to dioceses, working with seminaries, working with uh, parents, with schools on these issues now for almost five years. But we decided to create this project so that we could establish a website that would have resources for families, for priests, for for Catholic schools on these issues. So in broad strokes, what we do is a number of things. We have the website, which provides these resources, and we divide it into several buckets. For parents, we have particular toolkits, um, downloadable information. We have what we call the basics. You know, here's what you need to know. Then we do the same for parishes and um, for... Wait, what's our other bucket? Hang on. Wait, wait. Oh, schools. schools. So we have three buckets: <laughs> parishes and schools, and and so we we try to provide some specific information for each of those audiences. But there's far more to the project, really, than that. The Person Identity Project not only provides the website and these resources, but we provide expertise. Which, when dioceses or schools reach out to us. We can help by providing workshops. We can do day-long workshops because one of our core insights in working on this in the past five years is that the people in the church who are the ambassadors of faith, teachers, clergy, youth ministers, parents, those who are entrusted with communicating the faith to the next generation or to helping parents as they're dealing with uh, particular difficulties, they're the ones that we aim to form. So our website is not tailored to a 14-year-old who's struggling with this. It's It aims to meet the needs of the parents of that 14-year-old or the youth minister who's engaging with that 14-year-old or the the priest who's hearing a confession and and trying to figure out how do I support this family but still not um, compromise the mission of our school for in terms of how we address these issues. So we aim at at people who, again, what we call the ambassadors of the faith, the front lines of the faith, to help equip them so that they can, in turn, be able to address one-on-one all those questions that come up. So we have the website resources, we have the expertise of our leadership team, including a woman, Lucia Lozando, who's an attorney, but very experienced in ministry, has worked for a number of dioceses over the years, who can present this information in Spanish. So we're in the process of translating various parts of our website into Spanish language materials, but she is well-equipped to address this in terms of doing workshops for schools, for churches, for dioceses, again, equipping that that ambassador level, that leadership level, uh, so that they can then bring that information to the people in the pews, to the the kids in the in the right. schools or their religious education programs. Yeah, are there ways for people to 
connect with you, connect with the program so that they'll be receiving information, updated information and resources? How do you, how, how do they contact you to do yeah, that? Great question. So one of the things we do on our website is we invite people to sign up for a newsletter, which we send out every three weeks or so. And in that newsletter, we'll highlight specific resources from the website, but we also will use that opportunity to engage current issues. So for example, talking about the Equality Act or talking about legislation that's being proposed in various states to protect the rights of of girls and girls' sports, anything that relates to this, right. it gives us a vehicle to communicate that, that information on a current level. So we encourage people to sign up for that newsletter. We also have a, a contact form on our website and that where people can reach out to us, whether they're a school or a parish, a diocese, or a parent who's simply looking to be connected and for more resources or who has a story to tell. And while we're not counselors, we don't we don't do any counseling, we we try to connect people with the resources that they might need. Yeah. I'd like to go back uh, and talk a little bit more about the website because it is absolutely fantastic. Uh, I love it. Um, I was uh, actually asked by a, uh, a a Catholic physician to take a look at the website, and he said, "Joe, I don't, I don't know if you've seen you know this person and identity dot com website." And I said, I, "I've seen it. I haven't looked at it too much." He said, "Can you take a look at it? I, I just I just want to know if it if it's good or not." And so I spent I don't know forty five minutes to an hour just going through the website, and it is fantastic. I mean, it it, it is incredibly comprehensive, very very well done. And I just a couple of questions for you is what for our, for our audience here. What resources did you did you draw from in putting together the information that you did? Well, thank you for the question because it, it really is a very rich uh, website, and because we have a leadership team that has a variety of backgrounds. My own background is law and cultural and policy, but we have others who have worked, have um, teaching backgrounds, formation backgrounds in theology and philosophy and catechetics, pastoral formation. And then we also link up with several physicians who help vet our medical information and work with us in terms of presentations and things like that. So we've, what we've attempted to do and um, and we're always working to uh, add resources and improve this. But we we try to to bring together resources that touch on the core issues. So first, the theological and the the philosophical. How do we understand ourselves as a person? And so for that, we reach to uh, sources, authoritative sources such as church documents. We've looked at NCBC resources and include those uh, various statements. Yeah, the they're Pope. there. Or the Congregation for the Doctrine of Education, or for um, Education. So, so we include church resources to give people the theological truth behind this. But then we also include medical resources because what's happening as this idea of gender dysphoria, in other words, this con- disconnection—that's a diagnosis in the DSM. This experience that some people have of feeling that their identity does not match their body. That used to be treated as simply a psychological issue. And what's happened under political pressure is it's been moved out of the psychological realm into the medical realm with the idea that anyone who's experiencing this disconnect between identity and body should be fast-tracked towards medical interventions that alter the body instead of addressing the distortions, cognitive distortions or emotional wounds that might lead to that disconnect. So we have medical resources that talk about the current medical interventions and explain the dangers of those, explain the disputes over why this is being promoted. And we include in that uh, some, just a, a broad range of materials, secular. We have writings from people who would have nothing Nothing at, at all to do with the, the church, but it's just straight <laughs> science. It's right. basic information. But we also include the perspectives of Catholic physicians who have written on this and who are who are in the trenches working with families who cover this. So we cover Catholic teaching, medical resources. We also uh, delve deep into exposing the cultural influences. Because I, I think, Joe, that's that's one of the things that parents have been blindsided by is 
they didn't see this coming. And many priests too, there's an experience of how did this happen so fast? Where did this transgender identity idea come from and how did it get into my kid's high school? And so we have resources that talk about that, how it's promoted through the schools, the things that parents need to watch for, uh, the concerns about um, improper counseling that often begins at the school level and then goes to, uh, is certainly promoted through secular counselors, and the need for parents to be careful when they're looking for psychological support for their kids and addressing some of the misconceptions. Some people have promoted the idea that a child who's experiencing this conflict, this inner conflict between identity and body, needs to to go through what they call transition, to take hormones or have surgery in order to alter the body, or they will commit suicide. And this becomes a point of immense psychological pressure for parents. They're terrified at the thought that they're going to lose the child to suicide. But so we try to help them understand that in context, that most of the kids who are struggling with these issues to the point where they're so depressed and and are threatening suicide, it's not the transgender issue per se. We see the same rates. If you if you look at populations of young people who are have high rates of suicidal ideation or attempts, and you take out the transgender factor, you still have a high rate of suicidal ideation and, and attempt because of their underlying mental health issues. And so so parents need to not be pressured to go down a road which ultimately does not does not lessen the chance of suicide. The suicide risk remains, but forever alters their child's body and psyche in ways that are, are tremendously damaging. So we're covering Catholic teaching, medical resources, cultural issues, and we try to deliver it in uh, a variety of ways from books to articles to uh, short FAQs. Increasingly, we're creating downloads, and then we have resources, other experts in the field that people can uh, find a reference to. You know, who who handles the bioethical issues? Right. Well, NCBC, National Catholic Bioethics Center, you're on our website. Who handles counseling? We have a number of resources there that people can turn to. Mm-hmm. So, so we're trying to be a one-stop uh, shop, so to speak, a, a hub, really, for the good work that many organizations are doing, but a place where people can come to find all the information they need to further their own education and and, um, troubleshooting on these issues. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just a a quick follow-up. You you, you mentioned a couple of times that the the theological grounding of the website, really the project as a whole, is in the Catholic tradition. But it's not the 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 website and the, and the program as a whole is not simply for Catholics, correct? No, it's um, it's definitely from the perspective of the of our Catholic beliefs, partly because the Church has a rich body of teaching, both philosophical and theological, that that uh, can be brought to bear on this issue. So we do include quotations from Catholic teaching and and things like that, but it is completely accessible to anyone from any tradition. And in fact, I've heard from uh, numerous people who have no faith, who have found this to be tremendously valuable. In fact, in my own work, uh, I I work with a number of uh, people from a variety of backgrounds who see the threat that that gender identity laws and provisions. Uh, pose to children in particular. And so I work with uh, people who are atheists, people who identify as lesbian, people who have uh, no faith and indeed in other contexts might be hostile to it, people who are Christians, who are, who are Orthodox Jews, people who are Mormons, people who share that belief in the truth about the human person, that we're created male and female, and that there's a better way to address these confusions. So just to your original point, yes, it's Catholic because that's who we are and because the church offers such a wealth of teaching, but we put forward the medical information just from a straight medical perspective, the cultural information, same thing, and the theological and Christian anthropology. I, I think it's written in such a way that it makes sense. It just, 
it, it should speak to, and, and yeah. the feedback we've gotten is that it does speak to people coming from all sorts of backgrounds. Yeah. I, and again, I, I, was, I, I very highly recommend uh, the Person and Identity website. It's a fantastic resource. But Mary, as I was going through it, and this is just a, a, a kind of a fun question, I, as I was going through everything, the, the thought hit my mind, how long did it take you guys to put this thing together? I mean, there is well, so much material. It's it's very. I mean, it's very well organized. We'll talk about the information, uh, the organizational uh, part of it in a second. But there's a ton of information. And how long? Again, how long did put? How long did it take you to put it together? And what did you? How did you make decisions about what you included and what you don't include? Because there's there's as you said, there's so much information out there. Yeah. Well, as I said, we've been working on this issue. Uh, just intensely over the past five years, both in terms of our, our, our leadership's team speaking and writing and working with people inside the church. So we've been immersed in it. So it was a matter of, of trying to distill from that what people need to know. And right. so the creation of some of the documents came out of our experience. So some of the guidance that we give to schools or, or to diocese, which I, I should mention, not all of that is available on the website because there is some information that's meant to help dioceses and schools craft their own internal policies and documents. And we make them that kind of information available directly to them. We don't put that out on the website because we recognize that that's, it's more of a background source. And so schools or dioceses that are interested in that material can contact me directly through the Ethics of Public Policy Center or contact us through the website. We can provide that. But in terms of, of sifting through, we really tried to think about the questions that we would receive from audiences, the emails we would receive, the the, uh, the heartbreak of parents. What is it that they were searching for and could not find and to, to pull that together. So again, because we've been working on this so intensely for a number of years, it, uh, it, it still was a huge project. We started working on the website last year, bef- right before COVID hit. And, and some of our work was a bit delayed because we wanted to create some videos and things and could no longer meet in person. But but basically, the website was under construction for for nearly a year. And as I said, we're continuing constantly to add more information, to refine, to right. update things. Because the other thing, Joe, is that that gender ideology and the terminology that's being used, particularly by those who are promoting this ideology, is constantly in flux. So there's an evolving right. sense of oh, yeah. the challenge, as I'm sure you experience in, in your own work. Oh yeah! Oh, absolutely. Um, and just uh, you know, we talked a little bit uh, off camera. The uh, the the NCBC is putting out a book uh, very soon. It's called Transgenderism in Catholic Healthcare, and we're going to be dealing with a lot of these issues from a medical perspective, from a theological perspective, and we'll be putting out um, model policies as well too. That, uh, but but you're right. When you you know, just when you think you you sort of have an understanding of some of the terminology, it, it changes. It's it's kind of the old thing. You know, you trying to nail jello to the wall it, 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 it always you know it's always moving i was wondering you uh, just going back to the website one one final question about that you started to mention this a little bit earlier but i was wondering to talk a little bit about how the website is structured so that people can find the information mm-hmm. you know whether you're you're a, a diocese a diocese you're a school you're you know whomever you're a parent how, how is the website structured so that you can easily find the material that you need Yeah, so you're right, because there's a vast amount of information. So the the website includes a number of categories, one that we call the basics, which covers the human person, what do we understand? What do we mean by the human person? Gender ideology, what is it? You know, what is it? What does it mean? What's the terminology? Uh, Common That section is fantastic, by the way, I just want to let you know, I love the basic section. Love it. Yeah, and I think I think terminology is important because if the church is going to address this, we need to understand the meanings that are imported into the culture by, you know, I hate to say the other side, but by those who are promoting gender ideology. And we need to be careful not to use terms that are loaded that include assumptions that or premises that are contradictory to our Catholic faith. So for example, I'll just give you one. Uh, It's become increasingly common 
for for policies and laws and media discussions to refer to people as either transgender or cisgender with the idea that but, oh, that drives me nuts. It drives it, that term cisgender drives me nuts. Right. It means Sorry. it's an invented term. <laughs> it should drive you nuts because it's right. an invented term that attempts to make everyone else conform to gender ideology. It's invented as sort of a foil to the idea of transgender because one of the concerns of this movement is to normalize what is inherently right. Pathological, rooted in wounds and and pain and disconnect, and and in saying that, Joe, I want to emphasize. You know, we all have our own struggles, so it's there's not a sense of anyone who's struggling with this or their families. There's something quote bad about them. It's more that you can't heal a wound unless you know where it is. You can't clean out a wound unless you see exactly where it's festering and and you know what the what the problem is and so we have to identify that those underlying wounds and pathologies and the the inaccurate terminology in order to be able to help people heal and and that's the ultimate goal here it's to bring the truth forward but in a practical sense to help individuals heal to help schools establish policies that are going to be conducive to helping children embrace their true identity as son or daughter of the Lord, not as this amorphous, I get to self-define according to my feelings today, which might change and be something different tomorrow. And in the meantime, I reject my body. And you know, so we're we're trying to to clarify that terminology. But but back to your question about the basics, we cover the human person, gender ideology, terminology, and then the common FAQs, the questions that we hear most often. And then we have a section on medical information, uh, which again, covers some of those basic points, because unfortunately, parents especially need to be careful because the American Academy of Pediatrics has bought into gender ideology. And to the point that there's encouragement at the last American um, Academy of Pediatrics conference, which was held this past fall, they had speakers who were promoting the idea that every pediatrician should do what they call a gender screen. In other words, the child comes in and they tell the parent, the physician tells the parents, oh, you know, I want to chat just one-on-one with your child. And during that one-on-one conversation, the pediatrician will say things like, so I see you are listed as as a girl. Are are you comfortable with that? Or do you ever wonder if you're a boy? In other words, they're they're creating a problem. They're raising and intruding upon a child's sense of identity, suggesting, well, maybe maybe you're not really who you think you are. Again, behind closed doors, without the parents there. So this idea exactly. of gender screening is becoming. Uh, more accepted within the pediatric community and, and adolescent medicine. And parents need to be aware of that, that, that they have to, just as you want to be careful that a counselor is proceeding from an understanding, a common understanding of the human person that, that is true, it's based on, they don't have to be Catholic, but they have to accept the, the vision of the person. In the same way, your physician, your pediatrician, your your uh, internist who deals with your adolescent needs to be absolutely committed to the truth that we are created male and female, to the biological differences between male and female, so that they're not going to be encouraging either doubt or sowing uh sowing dissatisfaction or pointing them in the in the wrong direction if there's already some confusion. So we address some of those questions in the medical information and uh, and and there will be more coming because this, that aspect is an increasing problem across the not just our culture but but even other countries. And I, I should mention that too, Joe, that we have heard from and been in contact with uh, countries in the Caribbean, countries in Asia, countries in Europe that are experiencing similar issues. And so they're able to draw upon the information on our website, even though much of the cultural information is geared towards the U.S., it's 
it's becoming increasingly common that in these other countries they're seeing very similar things. Partly because the U.S. Um, it's it's part of our it was part of our foreign policy under the Obama administration, and it has ramped up in significant ways to under the Biden administration to promote gender ideology just right. across the sweep of their yeah. foreign policy. Yeah. Yeah. It's scary. That's, it's, it's what we export and it's, it's yes. really sad and it's really scary sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd like to change gears a little bit, Mary, and, and talk about a term that you've used a number of times uh, through our podcast so far. And that term is gender ideology. So I was wondering first, can you tell us how do you define the term gender ideology? And and you've kind of talked about this in some ways already, but talk a little bit more about why this ideology is so problematic. Yeah, gender ideology is something that uh, even though Pope Francis has sort of popularized that term, Pope Benedict referred to it in, in broad strokes because it's it's an ideology, a set of beliefs. It's its own belief system about the human person. And it's been percolating through philosophical and academic circles for decades now because its roots are in atheism, nihilism, um, enlightenment theories, radical feminism. Marxism is, is very much present in this. And so it, gender ideology is a false set of beliefs about the human person. And it's premised on the idea that who you are, your identity, is self-defined. In other words, there is no creator. Right. There are no, no constraints right. or boundaries or no natural um, sense of who you should be, no human nature. Everything is just your choice. And so uh, one of the basic um, beliefs that's proposed in gender ideology is that that who you are is a matter of your will. So there is no unity of body and soul, unlike in Christian anthropology. The human person is viewed as this kind of jumble, a, a fractured vision, a jumble of all these different dimensions that never need to align. And the, the most problematic dimensions are two. Instead of talking about, as we do, a person's sex as a reality, we're created male or female. And, and sex, by the way, is a term that describes an organism's orientation towards a particular um, reproductive role. It, it, that's how it's used across species. So for human beings, it's sex is the body's whole organization towards fulfilling a reproductive role, whether or not you're actually fertile or actually uh, give birth or father a child or, or whatever. So it's, it's the entire body is organized around that principle. And reproduction occurs only with male and female, either have large gametes, the ova, which is female, or small gametes, sperm, which is male. And that's, there are only two there, there is no human person alive who's ever been <laughs> conceived, you know, apart from that unity of male and female. So sex is binary. Sex is real. It's measurable. You can determine it. But gender ideology views sex in a different way. According to gender ideology, sex has little significance. So they reduce it to your body parts which they then believe are sort of interchangeable. You can amputate someone's breasts. You can add uh, pseudo genitals. You, in other words, you you can um, almost like Lego people. You you can snap things off and snap things on because the body doesn't really matter. That your sexual identity is is not really important. So they use terms like sex assigned at birth, which is a phraseology that Catholics should yes. never use. Right, because yes, our sex is absolutely. not like birth, as if it's sort of a bureaucratic action that that when you're born, and this is how children's books. There are now children's books to explain gender identity and gender ideology to children that are, are put out by people proposing this, and and how they explain sex to children is this: that when you're born, the doctor looks at your body and takes a guess about who you are, and and assigns you a label. And, and that's your, your sex assigned at birth, but only you know for sure. In other words, you can tear off this label and become someone else. And the, the predominant characteristic of identity under gender ideology is what's called gender identity, which is nothing more than a person's self-perception. That's it. It's, it's how you perceive yourself. Yep. 
And so official definitions will talk about gender identity as being your, your inner sense of who you are, whether that's man, woman, both, neither, something else. So it's, it's just a completely self-defined identity that's untethered to reality. It can't be measured. It can't be tested. You can't even perceive it from the outside. You have to ask, what is your gender identity? So that gives you a sense of the divide between Christian, the Christian vision of the person as a unity of body and soul, created male and female, versus gender ideology, where sex is insignificant. It's a label assigned at birth. You just have body parts, but who you are is self-defined according to your self-perception. And that self-perception is very often just measured against what we used to consider sex stereotypes. If you you know, if you're female and you like to play hockey with the boys, well, maybe that means you are really meant to be, to have a male identity or a masculine identity. Right. So, so it's, it's an odd blend of philosophies from the past and, and stereotypes from the past. And then this new sense that we just create ourselves and, and there are no limits on that, no human nature, no medical limits, no, no, and there should be no legal limits on it either. Right. Yeah. Okay. I got to tell you, Mary, you are pushing my buttons because cisgender is a word that drives me nuts. And the other term that absolutely drives me nuts is this whole assigned at birth. And it, it's, it's demonstrably untrue. Um, you know, your sex is, is not assigned at birth. It is, I mean, it's, it's, it's determined at conception. Mm -hmm. And I just remember this past summer for the first time when I went to get my physical, my doctor, who's a great guy, um, Catholic guy, faithful guy, um, his, the, 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 the system, uh, put in the, you know, the electronic medical records that you have to ask, what is your, what is your sex assigned at birth? And I just went off on him. And I said, that is, I said, that's offensive. I'm not going to answer that question. And, and we had a little discussion about it. And the fact of the matter is, you know, as you said, parents and others need to understand the language assigned at birth is, is just, I mean, it's just objectively false because, and it can be demonstrated. I mean, IVF clinics, this is completely unethical, but IVF clinics in our country every single day ask parents gee, do you want a boy or do you want a girl? And if, mm -hmm. and if they say, well, we want a girl, well, they go and they do a, a biopsy or whatever they do on the embryos. And if, you know, X, 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 Y, they, they choose, you know, the, the, the embryos that the parents want, they implant it. And guess what? They're right a hundred percent of the time. And it's because sex is determined at conception. It is not assigned at birth. Right. Uh, and it gets it's me upset. I, I think that's the other thing people need to realize because in talking with parents, I find some of them will think, well, you know, maybe you're born one way, but maybe you're really, really another. And and the, the important thing to realize is sex cannot change. As you said, it's determined right. at conception, but it cannot change. And what's interesting to me, especially as a lawyer, is that if you look at the informed consent documents that are used by the gender clinics that are offering these hormonal or surgical treatments mm -hmm. to allow someone to, to become this alternate identity, they never promise to change someone's sex because they can't. All they will do is they say, Interesting. You're, you're agreeing to these interventions, these hormones or surgeries in order to feminize or masculinize the body's appearance, which again, sort of reaffirms that binary, as you said, you know, it's one or the other. So that's how they talk because there's no other way to, to express the truth. They're trying to, trying to skirt around the fact that in spite of all the cultural promises that you can become someone different than, than who you are in your bodily identity, the reality is you can't, you can't, you cannot change sex. All you can do is change the appearance and, and what the tragic thing is, in talking with young people who have gone through this, and particularly those who are what we call detransitioners, they oftentimes got caught up in this as a teenager. They go through the, the medical interventions, the hormones, the surgery, and they come out on the other side, and they're still desperately unhappy. And then they get real therapy to deal with the underlying wounds and realize, oh my gosh, I'm not transgender. I was just a female who 
who rejected her body because I was scarred by sexual abuse or because of, you know, other, other wounds or circumstances. So when you listen to those detransitioners, they talk about how once a person identifies as transgender, it often becomes an obsession where they're constantly monitoring other people's reactions because they're, they're trying to, to pass or to present themselves as the opposite sex or some other identity. And, and of course you can't, you can't change who you are. So it's this constant, um, obsession or compulsion to, to monitor, to measure it. Are people misgendering me? Are they validating who I am? Because, because of this flawed idea that, um, that they can really sort of present as something different, but, but they know they, they can't, it's an, it's a dream that can't be fulfilled, fulfilled, which is one of the reasons why this lie, the lie behind gender ideology is so uncharitable. It is the opposite of compassion because you're, you're creating this, this illusion for people that they really can reject their body with no consequences and, and craft this other identity. And it just doesn't work. Yeah. I'd like to, a little follow-up on this. I'm wondering um, if you could uh, put your lawyer hat on for a second. And I'm thinking as we're recording this podcast, I just read a story coming out of the UK that there's a, uh, a biological woman. She quote unquote transitioned to a man as a, you know, as a teen, uh, actually she was a child and she was on puberty blockers and everything else. So I assume this was very young. She has detransitioned and now she's suing the National Health Service in the UK. Question for you, are the lawsuits coming? From all the children who are being, um, you know, their 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 bodies are being mutilated. Essentially, um, are the lawsuits going to come uh, when these people, when they when they get to the age of majority, they realize what happened to them? What's going to happen? Yeah, I I think there will be lawsuits here in the U.S., but I think we're still a few years away from that. Partly because the um, the power and uh, institutional sort of pressure coming from the LGBT lobby is immense. So the case that you referred to in the UK was brought, it was a young woman named Carabelle who went through this and she actually won. She, she sued the National Health Service, not for damages, not for money damages, even though I think she would have had a case to, to um, be awarded damages, but her concern was to say, change the protocol. Because remember, they have socialized medicine, so it's all controlled cent- centrally. Right. So her concern was to say, this was wrong. There is no way I could have consented to these interventions. There's no way I could have possibly appreciated that by taking puberty blockers and, and cross-sex hormones that I compromise my fertility. There's no way that I can appreciate that that undergoing all this means my sexual function is going to be diminished as an adult, that I'm going to have chronic health problems, that asking a teenager, a young teen to, um, to understand the implications of the decision is just wrong. It, it violates the notion of informed consent. So she won in the court, but it has now been appealed. And interestingly, the Endocrine Society, which is based here and is a politicized organization, has received uh, approval to intervene in that case. So they're going to be presenting their own, uh, again, politicized position that, no, this these interventions are a good thing, even though in their own documents, the Endocrine Society in 2017 changed their their guidance to physicians. Initially, their position was yeah. this: these kinds of interventions are unproven, experimental, they carry significant risks. We don't recommend it for minors. They changed under political pressure because the evidentiary base of the studies they cited and stuff was low, low quality. Um, their recommendations yeah. were were graded as weak. In other words, it's it's not um, it's not authoritative. And even in their own document, they say this document, this guidance, should not be used as quote a standard of care. But it has just 
taken off and the gender clinics, which are making money hand over fist by exploiting these young people in their oh, families. Yeah. Uh, it's it, all about the money. Oh my gosh. Yes. The, because the pharmaceutical companies, they, they create a customer for life. If you take a young woman, for example, and you take out her ovaries and you take out her uterus, she has no natural hormonal production. She's got to be, be and, and she does this because she wants to be, quote, seen as or perceived as as masculine as a man she's got to be on those those uh the opposite sex hormones testosterone for life because her body needs certain hormones for bone strength and and for other aspects of of human development but it's an artificial uh introduction of these hormones really you have a, a person who is at war with their body's natural functions and their body's natural uh attributes and and yet this is being sanctioned by medicine. And you know, one caution for your listeners is that you will often hear said or quoted in the media that all the major medical associations, the AMA, American Academy of Pediatrics, the Endocrine Society, uh, the American Psychi- Psychiatric Association, all of these back these medical interventions as quote medically necessary and therapeutic for someone who is experiencing this this uh, disconnect between identity and body. But what people need to understand is that those statements, one, are mostly written by activists. Number two, they do not represent the membership view. They're typically uh, crafted by a small subcommittee, 10 people, maybe 20 people who are part of the, the gender and sexuality subcommittee, who, who, in other words, they have a stake in it. They have a politicized stake in it. Who will craft these documents and put them out? And even though there may be a, a little disclaimer at the bottom, this doesn't represent everyone, and it's presented as such. So people get the wrong idea that this is somehow based on research. That this represents the vast consensus of medical practitioners, and it's just not true. This concludes part one of my interview with Mary Rice Hassan. In part two, Mary discusses where gender ideology came from and how it has become so entrenched in our culture. She also speaks to how this ideology has infiltrated our public schools. For more information on these topics and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you would like to subscribe to our Bioethics Public Policy Report, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. For archived editions of our podcast, please go to our website, hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, please remember that the NCBC has a 24-hour consultation service, You can contact us by phone at 215-877-2660 or by going to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and clicking on Ask a Question. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.